Hello and welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the host of this podcast. I'm also the founder of my firm of surveyors, NC Real Estate, where we do asset management and property investment strategy for landlords and property investors who want to invest in commercial and mixed use property. If you want to find out more about that, head on over to ncrealestate.co.uk. Thank you so much, everybody, for all of the positive feedback that you're sending my way for the new format of the podcast. I appreciate it so much. If you want to continue giving me feedback, then come on over to at Honest Property Investment and leave me a message or write me a DM. I would love to see it. It's been a really interesting week for me this week. I'm kicking off some enfranchisement proceedings and that involves getting leaseholders together as well as our solicitor and our valuation surveyor or enfranchisement surveyor who's going to guide us through the process. I'm going to drop this in here because I will come back to you on it. It's a process that does need a little bit of secrecy because of course we're going to have to go and serve notice on the head leaseholder in this case. So I don't really want them to know if they do listen to this that this notice is coming. Of course I've not said the building could be any one of my buildings that we're doing it on but I'm letting you know that that's something I've been working on. And one of the biggest issues is getting all of the leaseholders together. That is a huge, 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 huge um, issue that we've had to deal with and making sure that everybody's on board to do it. Some people want to stick their heads in the sand. And so one of the things that I realised that I have to do is I have to manage everybody's expectations and say, look, I know it might be expensive, but here's how we plan to combat that. So if you don't have the money right now, okay, great. Here's what we're going to do instead. So I'm letting you know that this is a work in progress and I will come back to it, but this is something that I'm personally working on. Professionally, I've taken on a lot more one-to-one consulting clients, which is absolutely fabulous. I really enjoy doing it. But I wanted to let you know or let you into one of the big issues that you face as property investors if you don't start paying attention to what's going on in your current property portfolio and what you want to do going forward. And the rest of this podcast is is going to cover that because we've got the amazing Felicia Flinders coming on to talk about pensions. Now, one of the big buzzwords in property investment at the moment is SAS pensions. Get your SAS pension, buy commercial property, you can make a huge amount of money out of it, or you can loan a limited company money and then you can buy whatever properties you want through there. That's all well and good, except for your SAS pension trustee will have a lot of rules and regulations for you. And if you don't understand what that is, there is absolutely no way that you can create a strategy. There isn't. One of my big, my the big things that I'm covered with my clients is, look, we need to know what you've got already. We need to know where the money's coming from and we need to map that out. If you don't know exactly what is going on, then how on earth do you know where you're going to? For example, in this uh, particular strategy, the SAS will be loaning the limited company money and then we need to make sure that we pay that SAS pension back 20% of the money loaned on an annual basis. So that's a five-year strategy that we have to put in place while hitting some pretty hefty income goals and finding property to match. Now, if you were to just loan the company, say half a million pounds and never think about paying it back, you could be in a huge amount of trouble tax-wise. So you have to be finding properties that do over the odds in order to hit those goals. And this is something that you may not consider. You may just be buy, 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 or I'm going to find this money and I'm not going to pay it back. Or, you know, I'll think about that later because 
owning property means that I'll have a lot of money coming in. And so, yeah, there'll be money in my bank account to pay that back. But what happens if you don't know it? What happens if you get to the point where you owe someone money and there's no money there because you didn't plan appropriately? What I want you to do, everybody listening to this, if you are listening to this right now, I want you to go and forecast how much you're expecting to get into your bank account on a monthly basis for the next 12 months. How much is coming in from your properties? How much is coming in from any work that you do, any contracting that you do? How much is coming in, for example, from every mortgage or a development or selling a property? Map that out monthly and then see what you've got in your bank account. Do you need to take any profit from that? So do you need to put any money in your bank account to live? If so, deduct that as well. Is there any tax payable on that? Make sure you add that in. Do that for the next 12 months because that is going to show you exactly how much money you've got to play with and how much money you've got left over. Do you need to pay back any investors? Do you need to pay back your SAS fund? Do you need to pay any interest to your investors? All of this has to be mapped out too. It's vital. If you don't do that, you have no idea where you are going. None whatsoever. You have no idea about your money in which case you can't be strategic with how you're going to move forward. So I urge you, this is something that I work on day in, day out with my clients and I make sure that they put this together. But I'm urging you as a result of listening to this podcast, go and do it for the next 12 months. See what you're actually forecast to bring in. How can you then use that to develop and build your property portfolio? That's your task for this week. Right, we have a phenomenal podcast coming up. I'm going to take a quick break to head on over and talk about Lionheart. Then we've got a day in the life of a surveyor or hashtag dit loss. And then I've got the wonderful Felicia Flinders coming onto the podcast. I think it's her first ever podcast to talk to us about pensions and why you need to be so aware of your pension and when you need to get started and how you need to get started. This is vital to your success going forward. If you're listening and you're thinking, oh, my retirement is a long way off. Well, it might come sooner than you think, or you might just put it off every single day, never get there and retire and, oh my gosh, I've got nothing. So this is a vital podcast for you to listen to no matter what age you are, right? I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be back shortly. Lionheart is the RICS's own benevolent fund, a charity that supports members of the RICS and their partners. They were established in 1899, so they have over 120 years of experience of supporting the surveying profession. Lionheart is separate from the RICS and a totally independent organisation and registered charity. They help RICS professionals, the life partner of chartered surveyors, as well as APC candidates, and have also recently expanded their support to surveying apprentices and students. Now, you're probably wondering, how can they help? Well, they provide training in the form of free workshops and webinars, and they operate a helpline through which you can access different types of support. They have over 30 workshops and webinars and a range from financial well-being, career and personal development, APC and post-APC webinars. The helpline service is bespoke to each person who calls as they try to offer a sort of package or service that suits your needs. Some of the services and support that we offer are professional counselling, coaching for a particular issue or challenge, legal advice, help returning to work or developing career after a period of not working, financial grants and general support. All of their services are free and to find out more, please visit their website www.lionheart.org.uk. This week's Day in the Life of a Surveyor, or hashtag Ditloss, is Dr. Samantha Organ. She has a really, really, really impressive resume and she does a multitude of things during the week. So let me hand you over to her to show you exactly what she does as a surveyor. 
Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, I'm Dr Samantha Organ. I'm a Chartered Surveyor with the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, the RCS. I won the RCS Matrix Young Buildings Fair of the Year Award in December 2020 and I was a finalist for the Women of the Future Real Estate, Infrastructure and Construction category back in November 2019. I work both as a senior lecturer in building surveying at a university in the southwest of England and as a surveyor in industry for a national conservation charity. For me, every week is different, so my day-to-day work incorporates a lot of variety. For part of the week, I could be giving lectures to undergraduate or postgraduate students across different built environment degrees, such as building surveying or real estate, preparing teaching and learning materials or assignments, marking assignments or meeting with students or colleagues. This year, I've increased my use of e-learning technology for many of my lectures and tutorials, and I will be looking to embed some of these tools to enhance the student learning experience going forward. I'm research active, so you can also find me busy with research projects or writing academic papers. This can include writing tenders for research funding, meeting with funders, undertaking primary research or critically reviewing the existing literature, undertaking analysis, meeting with the research team and, of course, writing up the findings. This can also lead to me sitting on panels, giving presentations or giving interviews about my research. Today, I had meetings with students and colleagues, but I also started marking final year undergraduate dissertations. Today was unusual because I also chaired three breakout sessions for the annual RSES Building Surveying Conference. The breakout sessions that I chaired focused on the topics of fire and energy efficiency. I really enjoyed chairing these sessions and listening to the speakers, as well as receiving interesting questions from the audience. The conference usually takes place face to face, but this year it took place virtually. When I'm not working at the university, on my days in practice, you're likely to find me trying to solve a problem. This can be from diagnosing a building defect to a wider strategic challenge. When running projects, this will include managing budgets, writing specifications for project work, obtaining statutory consents, and tendering and procuring contractors and specialists. Work can incorporate internal and external professionals, including ecologists, engineers and conservation officers. In my role, I need to think long term about how to look after our built assets. As part of this, it's really important for me to consider aspects such as sustainability, energy efficiency and climate change adaptation as part of our projects, as well as trying to enhance the experience of tenants, visitors and local communities. It's also really important to work with and support others in my organisation, such as rural surveyors, managers, curators, facilities managers and rangers. In this role, I have the opportunity to to divide my time between the office and visiting sites, which I really enjoy. As part of my work in industry, I'm really fortunate to work with teams who have vast and varied experience and backgrounds. So we bring different perspectives to a problem. More recently, I've been liaising more with other organisations to share knowledge and try to resolve industry challenges. Outside of the day job, I currently sit on a national board for the RCS, contributing to strategy and supporting those in the early stages of their career. So ultimately, I suppose, my day jobs are about thinking long term, problem solving and sharing of knowledge. Okay, today I am super excited. I have one of the loveliest women I know on the podcast, Felicia Flinders. Hello, thank you for coming. Oh, Natasha, thank you very much. Nice to be here. So Felicia is an expert in all things pensions. So Felicia, tell me about your background. Where did you start? How did you get all of this knowledge? Talk to me about you, you, who you are, what you do. Right, where do I start? Okay. 
I do I do like pension. Okay, my background. I got into pension. Pension came into my life. I just remember being age 13 and realizing that my mum, who was a one parent one parent family, mum of four, um, first generation Nigerian, some of Nigerian heritage, had stopped paying into her nursing pension pot because she needs to make ends meet. And so I just remember being age 30 thinking, oh, when my mum gets to, you know, retires, what's going to happen then? And so I didn't, I don't know, something happened. I just focused and got on with my A-levels, went to university, got my degree in maths and um, management sciences. And I knew I had to work in the city to make enough money for me and my family and my mum because I wanted to provide for her. So I... I, I like numbers, so I did uh, Mass and Management Sciences at the University of Manchester. And I was living in West London, and I knew that I would um, work in the city, living, live in West London, even or Richmond or Kew Gardens, and have gone on Central Line to work. That was my vision at age 13. So anyway, so I, I um, went to university, did Mass and Management Sciences, and then... Um, and then fell into this amazing profession called the actual profession, which combines business and maths and working in the city. So a big tick. And in that profession, we focus on the, the actual profession, focus on things like pension, life insurance, investment and risk. And from there, I, you know, I knew about things like pension in my 20s. because I had to study for one of those exams. And... Um, and I knew that yeah, I had to get a well-paid job that would be sufficient to provide for my family when I did have a family and my mum. Mm-hmm. And that and that's where I, you know, the rest is history. So I qualify. I'm not sure if you know much about being an actuary, an actuary. It does take a while. It's we have to in my days there were about 10 exams, and on average it took um seven years to qualify. And it was like longer than doing um the qualifying to become a, a medic, a, a doctor. And it was quite it's quite a niche area. When I when I joined the profession, there was only like 3,400 actuaries in the whole um, UK. It's such a niche area. And we're quite we're, we're just, you know, our tagline for our profession is making financial sense of the future. So we're always predicting. So the focus is insurance companies and pensions. So we work out how I just remember sitting one of, one of my exams. We will actually work out how long it takes for, we calculate mathematically how long the average person will live for. So we call it the expectation of life. Mm-hmm. So for insurance, and um, so we work out how long, you know, um, when you take out insurance policy, the insurance companies need to know how long you live for and how much premium to charge you. And that's what we calculate as a life insurance actuary. And for instance, if you're cutting for, we also work in, in, in the field of um, what we call general insurance, which is things like car insurance and household contents insurance. So we work out how much premium to pay uh, we'll charge for, say, a young driver. And that's based on their age, where they're driving a car, what type of car. We call that rating factors. So where the sort of the number crunch is behind things like pensions and insurance and, and, and investments. So, yeah, so basically, I so SAS, came into my radar in my early 20s and staff, I mean, staff pension. And um, in those days, it's also called the Director's Retirement Plan. So it's really set up for small business owners to um, set up their own pension product or mm-hmm. plan and pay into that. And then with a SAS, you can actually then utilise it for your own business and help that take money out from your pension pot to help for it to, to grow your business. So it's yeah, it was definitely a it's a good product still there. So yeah, it was way back. Um, it's been it's been around for a while, but it's quite popular at the moment with that. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's how I got into this is why I'm so passionate about um, pension at the moment because I want to um, okay the benefits the benefits of pension is amazing. It's government backed. You're paying a bit of money and the government tops it up by tax relief. Mm-hmm. It's a non-brainer. I just need to get the word out there for people just to get, just take out their pension. And when you work for a company and the employer offers you a pension, 
did say yes I'd like to paint for my painting plan and um and uh, the reason why I'm so passionate about painting because of what happened to my mum because she did mm-hmm. have four kids in London on a nurse's salary and she just just took her money out. I remember that t- I remember her taking that lump sum out because you in those days you could stop paying to your nurse's pension and take the money and just you know mm-hmm. put food on the table in my mum's case and so um so it's been my reason why why French University did my A levels, it became you know what's natural profession to keep going. But now it's also the reason why I want to talk about pension to make make it more to bring people make people more aware that it's a good benefit and um, it, the, t- the government puts money into it. So if you're paying, if you're a lower taxpayer, which you pay tax at twenty percent, the government will because of your tax relief at that level, you get twenty percent effectively top off on your pension contribution and if you're a 40% taxpayer you've got a 40% uplift which is a, you know it's, and it's just an amazing benefit so and another uh, reason why pension is such a passionate thing um, because of my again because of my background and now I'm talking about the life expectation okay mm-hmm. what's happening with the demographics in the UK is we are in that whether we like it or not we're in an Asian population which means that there's more oldies now and fewer younger people because the birth rates reduced so with the state pension um it was set up many years ago that you retire as a male at 65 and the expectation of life calculated by people like actuaries was seven years so you retire at 65 and within seven years you've passed away right but now people are leaving longer so you retire at 65 and you can outlive you know, if someone age 16, I read the statistics recently, someone age 16 now has got a very high chance of living to age 100. So the state pension scheme isn't set up for that, for you to live from, you know, age 65 to 100. And also now, um, with um, as you know, the state pension age is increasing. It was 65 for male, but now it's 66, 67, 68. So someone now age 16 is likely to be 77 to 78. So you're going to work from age 16 to 77, 78. So a lot of people depend on thinking, oh, I'm sort of provided by the state benefit. I'm okay. I've got the state pension. But the answer is no. You've got to. My message now, because of my background, I know it's like a ticking time bomb, but people are living longer. And I know that from the natural point of view, from my life insurance side. And I know that the, pe- the state pension was set up for those 65, but no, it's going to go up to 78, 70, 77, 78. But we can't, we can't, message needs to get out there, but we need to, we as society or people need to know that you can't rely on the state, pen- um, state pension. Wow. So when you come to this podcast, I think, oh, it's my chance to talk about pension because I'm passionate about it because of my background and, and also now I'm passionate about it because it's, it's like from that drug point of view, from my professional point of view, we need to get the message out there that people need to start thinking about their pension. So, yeah. so can I ask if anybody is listening to this and they think I haven't got enough time to put money away for a pension that's going to last me 30 years, what do you say to that? Because I know that people will be listening to this and panicking panicking you can do something about it okay depends what age you are uh, if you're um okay my i'm actually this week i've launched a, a new um business it's, it's basically a consulting business to talk about pension and educate people about pension and this sort of stuff i'm talking about and there's other there's a lot more information i can you know I'll bring into this um into this workshop and um webinars but it depends how old you are if you're in your 20s you can actually, you can laugh at this. You can actually, the government really, really wants you to provide for your future. You can actually start a pension when you're one day old from birth. You can start. Wow, I didn't know that. How would you do that? Um, Of course, you can't as personally, but you've got your parents, your grandparents, they can pay money into a pension. So it's a pension project you can set up from age zero. And you can pay, um, I think it's either 4,000 or 3,660, and I have to check that, but it's something like 4,000, between 3,500 and 4,000. You paint that, and the government will give you a, a, um, 
it's really tight by Natasha. The government gives you a tough hop at that age as well. So for instance, on one of my posts on my Instagram posts is like you you can put in you put in 2880 and the government will give you 720 into that to make up the difference to 3600. That you can start from zero. So you can start, you know, now when you're in your in university or in your twenties. But when you start work, definitely tick that box and and um, go into your employer's um, employer's pension scheme. And so um, you can actually pay into a pension scheme in the UK up to age seventy-five. Mm-hmm. So late. And every time you pay into it, the government will then put that extra top up free money that would help you to um, grow your pension. And whilst growing your pension pot is tax free. The money you put into your pension pot goes tax free. So it's just it's just like the government's there. It's there for people to know it's there. And I want to raise awareness of pension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you were starting in your 20s, yes. what would you what would you advise someone who's starting in their 20s as opposed to someone who's now in their 50s and thinking, what do I do? So the 20s is easy because they've got time, you've got the compound effect, senior start, the, the, um, the, you know, the growth, putting money into the stock market, you can put it into a general index and it will just go up. If you, you know, I can draw graphs, you know, in my workshop, I'll be showing people about the growth, starting, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's one really good example, if you put some money in and then you stop at age 25, 27, you don't have to put any more money and you'll get a million pounds at 60-65 because of the compound effect of growth and because it's grown up tax-free as well it has you know amazing explanation, explanation of growth um, prospects so in the 20s I would say to my okay I've got young adult children they're all in my kids are now in their 20s and I'm saying to them set up your stick and just put some money into the stock market you can put into a normal basic um, just a basic you know index and just do nothing, go, you know, go to sleep, forget about it. And it will, just, it will do its business over the next 20, 30, 40 years. That's simple. And also, if you'll say, I also want to target my mums at the store gates, I call them, who can actually be, could have been putting money into their pension as well. Again, you don't have to be an earner, you can be a non-earner, and there's a product, there's a pension product there where you can actually put money into it. And again, if um, the government puts top it up with their tax relief. And also, you're talking about people in their 50s. Again, you can pay, start paying money into your pension pot from, um, in your 50s up to age 75. And still take advantage of the tax relief. So it's there. It's there for the taking. So can you go into the difference between a SIP and a SAS? Because these are buzzwords that are going around the property industry at the moment. But could you tell me what the difference are? Yeah, I can. They're both, um, they're both uh, you know, okay, SIP and SAS. They're both what we call a um, defined contribution pension product, which means that you put, you pay your premium, you pay your premium every month into your pension uh, product and you accumulate a pot of um, funds, of money. And then at um, when you retire, you can then draw, you can either by a, a fixed income for life, it's called immunity, or you can draw down on that, that pot of money, and we call that a drawdown facility. And um, also, another good benefit of, of a pension, when you retire, uh, from age 55 onwards, you can, you can, you can t- dip into your pension pot, you can take 25% of that pot tax-free. So as you, as you grow it, your pension pot is tax-free, when you get to retirement, you can take 25% of that tax-free. So again, another benefit of pension. So going back to your question about SAS and SIP, okay, they're both what we call defined contribution. You put some money into it, you raise a pot, uh, pension pot. Um, a SIP, um, they've got two things in common. You can, a SIP and a SAS, you can buy commercial property with it. So mm-hmm. in your space, your commercial property sector, you can use a SIP and as fast to buy, buy a prop, uh, commercial property. Okay, this 
SIP is a regulated product, so it's regulated by the FCA, right? Whereas a, a SAS is unregulated. A SAS allows you to, it's really set, as I said at the beginning, set up for small business owners, so they can they can build up their SAS funds and they can um, lend 50% of that SAS fund to their business and the business can use it to grow their businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And um, then you've got the, but a SIP, you can't do that with a SIP. You can't um, loan back 50% of the fund to your, to your, your what we call sponsoring company. So a SAS has got more flexibility, but it's unregulated. It's got more, more some, a lot of financial advisors say it's got a lot of, um, the fees are higher, but it depends what you do with it. So you don't, you know, they talk about, you know, you don't count it's the cost of doing business can ignore that if you can help if you can grow your SAS well depending depend on what you buy what your strategy is you can it can more than cover your fixed costs of running a SAS fund. Wow okay and so how do you use these products to buy commercial property because a lot of people just say oh, I'll take the money out of my SAS but actually what is the mechanism behind that how does that work? Okay, there's a big, um, right, that's quite, um, it, you, okay, set up a SAS. You decide to take, set up a SAS, basically you, um, you, 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 you get, you need to get, you need a sponsoring company, you need HMRC approval to set up this potential product called a SAS. A SAS stands for Small Self-Administrated um, Scheme. That's what it stands for, and a SIP stands for um, self-invested pe personal pension plan. Okay. That's the um, the uh, full uh, meaning of those those um, SIP and SAS. And so you you so you, you set it up. You set it up. You need a HMR. You need a, you need to be a company with a SAS. You need to be a company director. You need to have, own your own business. To have a limited company. So that's why in the olden days they, they were called director retirement plans um, because you need to, you need to become a, a, a director, have your own businesses. You said it. You um, you pay into it, and you, you need to grow to a certain amount to, in order to buy a commercial property. So there's no point you, if it's fifty thousand, you can't really buy much because you can't buy a commercial property with that. So and then if you say fifty percent goes to your sponsoring company, that's fifty and twenty-five k. So it's not you know you need to be quite a good sized pot, maybe two hundred plus, to make it really meaningful that you can start buying commercial property. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so yeah, it's basically on the depending on the size of your SAS funds, you can use it to buy commercial property. And so is a SAS a limited company or is a SAS and a limited company separate? Oh, they're separate. So you've got your okay. limited company, so you've got you know NC Real Estate Limited, yeah. Yep. You've got my, you know, uh, uh, we've got I've my my family SAS. I set one up last year for a family, it's linked to my um company my trading company my property company so you've got a company yep. and then you also got a SAS a SAS is a trust it's like you know it's a pension product and that's because it's a pension product in the UK it's set in a, in a trust uh, wrapper so that's why you need HMRC approval this has separate completely separate for your company but it's linked to your company so if you're a director you've got your sponsoring company like for me OYO Homes Limited and you then said, I want to set up a SAS, you then um, you know, get approval from um, HMRC. Your SAS provider sets it all up, does all the admin side, side to it all. So um, you, you find a SAS provider you're happy with, and they do all the admin side, right to HMRC, and um, that's how it's set up. You can transfer your existing pension in other places. Like for, me, for instance, I used to work for a company, uh, Aviva, Lloyd's um, Banking Group, so I can transfer my those pensions into my SAS, my family SAS now, and that's what you call, you know, transfer pension transfers. You've heard that being buzzed around in the property world. So you can transfer existing pensions into your SAS, or you can start contributing into it. Okay, and then do you buy the property in the SAS, or do you set up a separate company to buy the property in a separate company? Right. If it's a commercial property, you can buy it in your SAS. Okay. Yeah, you're allowed to do that. Um, but some in, in our property world, most people do, um, they give the loan 50% to their sponsoring company. And then sometimes it's bought outside the SAS. Um, 
it's easier. I mean, it's sweeping life out. It's easy to do that. You can get lending. You can then get um, leverage from a, a lender to to buy you know bigger property, more higher value property, or if yeah, commercial stuff you can buy within your staff. You don't need to buy. But residential, there's a big, there's a big, um, there's a there's a grey area about residential properties. Whether you could use it, you know, use your SAS to um, buy residential property. There's like several, yeah, definitely yes. That's you know, that is no non grey areas. It's if you're buying, if you're using your SAS funds to buy into a company like a trading company like Wimpy Homes, or you know, or or Barrett's Homes. That's like a trading company, development company. So you're buying shares into their company, and of course they build, they do build uh, residential homes. So that's that's fine. You can also use your if you're talking about residential staff, you can also use your staff to perhaps buy into um, loan, you know, invest in a peer-to-peer lending platform, and then that's fine because you know because they're in that platform. Those um, developers develop residential properties. So there's some sort of um, the three areas where you can sort of yeah it's fine there's no grey area in buying residential but direct well according to the HMRC or Pension Handbook direct investment in residential is not allowed that's in black and white yeah yeah and so we're seeing a lot of things online I see it on social media where people are buying mixed use and then selling the residential on. Mm-hmm. using SAS funds what is yeah. that is that actually something that you should be doing or should you stay far away from it um depends on your risk appetite there's ways I mean people are doing it by saying well what we do we find a mixed commercial the upper the uh, residential and, and bottom of commercial and then I would um at the point of sale I would split the title yep. so the so the residential goes into my sponsoring company and the commercial side goes into my SAS so that could be done by a clever, SAS, savvy solicitor firm. I've seen that been done. But yeah, it, it's fitting the title at, I think, the point of purchase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And does that often go wrong? What happens if it goes wrong? What happens if you accidentally... Oh, OK, if you get it wrong, if you do, if you do something which HMRC doesn't, it's not compliant with HMRC, there's a massive hefty tax. <gasps> And it's like 40%. Um, really? And actually, then HMRC can actually add another 15%. So it could be 15, 55%. This is why I this is why I'm writing this book, my SAS book on risk and rewards. The SAS is really good for doing some stuff, but there's also risk that if you get it wrong, your the hard end pension pot could be taxed by giving her tax penalty or 55%. And is that across the whole pension pot? The whole pension pot pays out. Oh, the pot is a bit easier to acquire this on um, non compliant assets. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's, your life, it's taking you, you know, working your, your guts out to get that pot. So, so it depends on your risk. You know, some people do risk it and don't really mind potentially getting um, taxed. Or some people think, okay, I don't want to risk that. I just stay in this. There's so many things you can do with that that why go into this grey area, murky waters, mm-hmm. it's a risk profile. And so in my book, I'm writing about SAS, it's, you know, it's risk and reward around SAS. It's going to go into details. These are the, definitely, that's fine. These are like, okay, these are definitely, okay, it's grey areas, but if you want to do it, but watch out, be be aware. So that, you know, if, at least if, if people do that, follow to read my book, they can see that in black and white and they can go with, with an informed decision that, yeah, I've got even my eyes open. I know I'm taking X, Y, and Z risk, but at least I've, I know about it. It's when people go in inadvertently and not knowing it's, it's there and knowing that there's 40% uh, potential, 55% tax penalty. And that's, again, it's back to my actual profession. You know, we're very... We're a professional body, and I'm, st- I'm an actuary, and we have we've got a professional code of conduct, and um, and I just have to adhere adhere to that. And so that's why it's it's important to to make people aware of what the risk and the rewards of having a staff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, if you're buying 
commercial property buyer assess can you get lending on that commercial property if you buy it in your SAS? Yeah, you can, but unfortunately, there's very few lenders out there. So the rate, it, it's not good. So sometimes it's another thing, you know, everyone in our property world talks about SAS, this, SAS, that, but sometimes it isn't fit for purpose. So you look for a deal and you find the right vehicle to, you know, a SAS, think about SAS, the tool, it's a part of mine you can potentially use for the right strategy, for the right property. And if it doesn't work, don't force it. So use something else, use like normal lending yeah. for like commercial property. And, and, and the amazing thing, okay, this is another good thing about the first, is that you've got your sponsoring company, you've got your company, property company, it buys the right property, it makes a lot of profit, then you can actually then allocate that um, up to 40,000 per person as employees contribution into your SAS fund to grow your SAS pension. So because it's taken out of your profit, your corporation tax is lowered, right? Yeah. And so you put money into your you've made you've got this, you bought this land, you've developed your property, or you bought this amazing commercial property with your sponsoring company, your development company, your trading company, and then you've made a lot of profit, you can then put in 40k into your SAS pot. And and you reduce your corporation tax because it's um, allowed expenses. So pension contributions are allowable expenses. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes complete sense. Could you do that with a residential property that's in your own name? Do what? Sorry. Do Could you make pension contributions from? Well, it, you're you're doing your pension contribution from your sponsoring company. So if you've got a, um, your sponsoring company, your development company, your yeah. trading company makes loads of money, you can then put that, you know, allocate some of that profit into your pension pot. And don't forget, you get that tax relief as well. Wow. Okay. And so with, can you contribute into your SAS pension yourself from yeah. Yeah, you can. money you have? Yeah. But it's more tax efficient to do it for your company. Okay. So this is why I kept on saying, you know, the SAS is for company related type businesses. Because if you've got your business, right, so I've got my OYO Homes Limited, I can, and I make loads of money in my um, company, I can then allocate, I can then pay employees' contribution to my SAS pot and grow that. And then when that's big enough, I can, you know, you can say, oh, I can loan 50% back into my company to grow my business again. So it's just, you know, circular. Wow, okay. And so when you're talking about SIPs, let's talk about SIPs you take away the business element of it and it's just something you set up for yourself? Do you still have to have trustees on board? Okay, with, with a SIP, you um, you normally take out with um, a company, a SIP provider, right? And then you've got your, and if you're, if you're, if you work for another company, if you work, if you're not a small business, you've not got your own energy company, you, you, um, and you work, so you work for a company, you're still working, you're still at your day job, you work for a corporate company or whatever, Mm-hmm. You you can pay into your SIP as well, right? Or if you've got your own company and your company makes profit, you can then pay that as well into your SIP. So SIP is the same as that. They're all the same. They're just different pension names for a pension product. So you've got the SIP, you've got the SAS, and you've also got personal pension. You've got stakeholder pension as well. You've got different products for... A pension is just... Yeah, it's, it's just amazing in the UK. It's just so many different ways, tax-efficient way of providing for your retirement tax and efficient. Is it a good idea to have one of each types of pensions? Okay, they're different. Again, I always say start with your strategy, start with the end in mind. So if you wanted to um you know I tend if you've got you know if you've got small business it makes sense to have a SAS but it depends on if you've got if you've only got if you've got nothing, you've got a small pot, it's a good idea to grow your SIP grow your pension using a SIP wrapper, right? Grow it to a nice size, maybe 200 plus. Then you've got something managed for to put into a SAS, and then set a SAS up, and then you can then, you know, commercial property numbers are at least 100K, aren't they, to buy mm-hmm. commercial property? So if you've only got 50K, you can't really do much with it, can you? So it's once you've grown it to a nice size, that's how you may consider SAS. But you could also consider SAS from day one if you 
you know, if you've got, you buy something in your development company, you develop and you make a million profit, you can start putting forth a case to your SaaS. And they say this for business partners. Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to add. A SaaS can have up to 11 members. So if you've got 11 people, SaaS trustees, that's 11 times 40. You know, so for myself, there's only myself and my husband, so we've got two of us. So each year, if we make enough money in our trading company, we can put cipher off 40,000 each into our into our um, SaaS or yeah. So yeah, so it's depends how much money you can make in your trading company. Yeah. So you may st- one year start start off with with nothing, but if you then a massive lot of you know a good size profit, profit you can start putting 40k into your each into your SAS and the other amount you've got you know so you have four of those that's four eight twelve six what 160,000 you can do it every year before you die you've got a million in your SAS pot so it, it all depends wow. where you're going and how quickly you're growing wow this is why it's got you know the risk and reward a SAS could really do make grow your wealth really quickly and then once it's in the SAS can I then pay I can then invest in different things so I could say oh I'll buy this oh yeah thing. yeah you don't have to do property there's other stuff okay you can, buy land, you can invest in land to build your own uh, property you can invest in um you know pay to lending platform um you can invest in um is that 20 things I've written down in my book you can invest in um you know care homes um, schools, institutions, you can invest in um, the stock market. That's what I'm doing at the moment. You know, you can still go and put money into the stock markets. You can buy investment, investment trust, unit, um, unit trust, you know, individual shares and gold. So there's a, there's a range of things you can invest in. It's not just commercial. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just commercial. There's other things you can invest in. Yeah. Okay, and so that is that the same with your SIP? If you had a SIP, you could do exactly the same. You can invest. In um, yeah, you can. The SIP does give you assets. The SIP is more restricted because it's regulated by um, the FCA. Um, you know, your SIP can invest, you can invest in commercial property, but some SIP providers don't allow you to do that. So you've got to be careful. You've got to go out looking for the right SIP provider that would allow commercial property. Because at the end of the day, commercial property again, I'm putting on my actual hat on. Commercial property, it's very lumpy, it's very illiquid, right? If you want to sell it like tomorrow, you can't. If you want to, if I want to share, sell my Amazon shares overnight, I can, because it's very liquid, right? But commercial, especially what's happened last year with COVID-19, trying to sell commercial property, it's very illiquid. So uh, it isn't. And, and then you mentioned having a commercial property in your SaaS. And so you've got to retire. I want to get rid of that commercial property. You get up to age 55, 60, and then you have COVID 19, and you can't sell commercial property. So it isn't, you know, how everyone raised about having commercial property in your pension pot. It's fine if you've got, say, you've got your dentist practice, and that, that building's part of your business, and you own it. You don't have to rent your commercial property for your business. That's perfect. It's, that's why SAS is bringing businesses like that. You know, you've got your dental practice or your optician. You you've got that building and that's your, you're not paying rent to your landlord, you're paying it into your SAS and that's growing. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant for that. But when you go out and buy commercial property and you're doing it for just investment and you find, oh, I want to retire now, but you can't sell that property, but you can't retire because it's all that lumpy, liquid investment. Um, again, that would be highlighted in a, set, a chapter on investment and, um, SAS isn't for everything, but it's good. Mm-hmm. And also, if you've got a SAS, if you've got a commercial building, sometimes the LLP structure is better because you can claim capital allowances. You can't do that in SAS. Okay. In, you know, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So I think we're going to wrap up this conversation, but final question if anybody could do anything right now to sort out their pension situation what would you advise that they do um right it depends where they are but yeah i would say definitely be more be aware of benefits of pension it's and 
and don't leave it too late. The sooner you start, the better, and the sooner you can reach your financial goals because you've got the compound effect. And also within a pension wrapper in the UK, it grows tax-free capital income. And when you get to retirement, you get that extra 25% tax-free lump sum you can take. Linking with that, they're going to invest if you don't draw on your um, income, the, the other the other bit on crystal, crystallised lump sum. So again, I'm just, as I said to you, I've just got really excited. I've just set up this business. I'm going to educate people on the benefits of pension and and also other, you know, other ways of uh, um, making your, uh, creating your wealth for um, generations to come. So you've got, obviously, everyone knows about property, the benefits of property, property um, but very people think about using about pension. Everyone's so focused on building their businesses, whether property business or whatever, a dental practice or an optician or small business. They forget about this this thing called pension, but it's so, so it's an amazing tax efficient way of building your wealth, your business, and also either property or whatever, but also think about pension. And with with a pension you can still invest in the stock market as well. It's like with a pension you can Set it up. It's tax efficient, right? And you can then, you know, diversify into property or into the top market. It's just, yeah. I think, I think personally, the pension is the one to go for, and more people just need to be more, be more aware of it. So my workshop would be educating people about those different types of pension, what the pros and cons. Some, you know, it depends where you are, where you're going with your, with your wealth building. Um, you know, I need to be out there. A lot of people have said, you know, you, Felicia, you know so much about pension. It's a criminal or very selfish, selfish of you not to talk about pension and be out there talking about pension. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> Amazing. Felicia, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. For everybody listening, I'm going to put Felicia's details below in the show notes. So click on them if you want to find out more about Felicia. We really appreciate you listening to us today. Don't forget to rate, review, share this podcast because the more people that listen to this, the more people that find it. Seriously, that's how this works. So the more people that listen, the more people you share it with, the more people that get access to this and the world becomes a better place. Seriously. Thank you for listening to us today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.